Let me pray with you. Lord, bless you. Thank you for Matthew, Lord. Thank you for his friendship. Thank you for his encouragement, Lord God. Thank you, Lord, for the brotherhood that you've even just built up between us, Lord, for the connection that he has with, with people from the church. You know, during this week, church, Matthew asked for a load of you by name who we met for maybe 10, 15 minutes that he's been thinking about, that he's been praying about, that he's been talking about. And bless you for that connection, Lord. A man who lives 9,000 miles away, whatever it is, that uh, you would connect him with us. Thank you for his daughter, Gray, Lord. Pray you would bless them this week as they look to give into this community. Where else would that happen in the world but in your church, Lord God, that, that you would connect in this way? Um, as you, Lord God, as Matthew comes to speak now um, and to share with us what the Lord has put on his heart, I pray that he would be anointed by your spirit. And uh, I pray that you would give us now, Lord, ears to hear you, Lord, eyes to see you, minds to perceive the things that you have in store for us in this very day, Lord God, that hearts would be open to hear and, uh, and not only hear and walk away, but hear and be changed from the inside out, Lord. Bless him this morning, anoint him this morning. We give him our attention, Lord, and you our attention in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Give it up for Matthew. I'm kind of a handsy talker, so I'm going to try to speak without holding this if I possibly can. If not, I will. Uh, brief background about who I am and why I'm here. Uh, I came here one year ago in May with a uh, college uh, group. We were doing a study tour of the British Isles. We started here, then went to Scotland, went to England. Uh, Rob spoke to our, our group about just what the evangelical church is experiencing in Ireland. And I was on the missions committee at my church, so I went up to him. My, my wife was here at the time, and I said, there could be an opportunity here. So I came and talked, and I said, I'd like to follow up with you, talk, correspond, Skype, whatever. And we just were talking over several months. So I came back out here in January, met many of you, and it was just sort of a vision planning trip. What can we do long term with Liberty Church? Uh, I like what I see here. I have a passion for Europe for many reasons. Part of it, as a church historian, it, uh, it pains me to see what Europe once was and what it is spiritually is what I mean. America's heading in the same direction. We usually follow European trends about one, day, one generation, as, as it seems, as Europe goes. We tend to follow suit spiritually. We're kind of going the same direction. Uh, we're talking with Rob about maybe even partnering up in Lesotho and maybe doing some stuff there. We've been talking about different opportunities, maybe doing a VBS-type scenario there. I don't know where that's going to go. I'll let him, him decide. But when we, we So we're here with my daughters in the front row here. She's, I've got four children, three girls and a boy. She's my oldest. And uh, this is her second trip here to Ireland, and uh, she's here predominantly to do music there with the kids. And um, we talked about me doing some speaking here, and what I'm going to do is sort of a, a two-part uh, talk here. You may, I don't know if you're going to be a part of it Wednesday, but this is a theme that's been on my mind for so long. Uh, the first part is the, the relevance of the gospel for the modern world. And then Wednesday night is kind of a follow-up, how do we share the gospel to a post-Christian generation? And uh, uh, back in the States, Josh Mandel has been a big name in a theological studies for probably 40 years. And he said when he first started in ministry in the 1960s, you could present evidence for the faith. And it could, if it was persuasive, maybe people would respond. And then later, as kind of the postmodern movement came along, 
you could present evidence for the faith and people would say, maybe it's true, maybe it's not. I don't really care. I don't know how it affects my life. And then as you kind of drift to the day, it's a lot of social politics issues which sort of creep up in Q&A sessions. And it seems like where young people are today, people I teach, I teach at a Christian college. I also teach at a, at a non-Christian state college. And I particularly love teaching there because I feel like I'm more in an evangelistic role there. And one of the things that just keeps coming up over and over and over and over is how does the gospel relate to the modern world? We're a world with computers and laptops and cell phones and Apple computers and the, the gospel seems like it's outdated, outmoded. It was born of a culture in a desert. People lived in tents. People didn't have any technology. People presumably were just stupid sitting around all day in the dirt. The gospel has nothing. It can speak to the modern mind. And what I want to address is, yes, it does. And if I didn't think it did, I wouldn't be here. And uh, there has been some very, very high-profile conversions, let me just say, in the sort of in the, in the intellectual world. It always tickles me. My students, uh, where I teach at my non-Christian school, are asking questions that sometimes my Christian students are rejecting. And what I mean is I had a <laughs> class just last week in a graduate school they said apologetics doesn't work. I said, well, then tell that to C.S. Lewis because he said something very different. Tell it to Alistair McGrath who teaches at Oxford because he was an atheist professor. Now he's a professor of theology. Tell that to John Polkinghorne who was a professor and a colleague of Stephen Hawking's and now he's a believer. Tell that recently to uh, A.N. Wilson who I'm going to talk about in a bit. He was an Anglican uh, believer, historian in England, right next across the pond from us, uh, drifted from the faith, wrote a book called um, The God's Funeral. Think about the title, God's Funeral, that God is now dead. He's irrelevant. We don't need him. He's not necessary. A.N. Wilson wrote an article not that long ago where he came back to the faith, and he explains his reason why. The gospel is very relevant to the modern world. Let me, let me outline four different categories I want to talk about. And, and any gospel you share that, in my opinion, doesn't have these four components is inadequate. Number one, sin explains the reality of evil. We sometimes want to shy away from sin because it's, it's not a comfortable topic, but you simply can't explain the misery in the world suffering, fear, doubt, frustration, anger, uh, just general politics where there just seems to be so much tension, so much anger, so much frustration. Uh, we were just talking to Rob. I said it's kind of weird, the obsession with our president. I don't think about him as much as Europeans seem to. My president was here last week in London. There were protests. I found it kind of kind of comical because I'm like, I don't think about it as much as y'all seem to. But the, just the general anxiety in culture, how do you explain it? You simply cannot explain it apart from sin. You start with Genesis. Genesis tells us about the fall. And when the fall occurred, sin entered the world. So did pain. So did frustration. So did doubt. So did murder. We saw that with Cain. 
Let me just outline some perspectives of some people in the last few decades. William Faulkner, the famous writer, wrote in his book, This Side of Paradise. He said, I grew up to find all God's dead, all worth fault, all faith in man shaken. He wrote that after World War I. Think about it. All God's dead, all worth fault, all faith in man shaken. That's somebody writing from despair. Frederick Nietzsche, the German philosopher, wrote that God is dead. And he said, without God, there can be no, no, no basis for morality. And Frederick Nietzsche predicted that the 20th century would be the bloodiest century in human history because there would be a profound loss of meaning. And without meaning and without purpose and without hope, there's going to be a spiritual vacuum. And in that spiritual vacuum, chaos is going to ensue. Madmen are going to rise. In the 20th century, who did you have? You had Hitler, you had Stalin, you had Mao, you had Mussolini, and on and on it goes. People trying to fill that void left by sort of kicking God out. Thomas Hardy, the famous writer, wrote a poem called God's Funeral. Ian Wilson would pick up on that. And what Thomas Hardy meant was that at the end of the 19th century, after Darwin, Freud, Nietzsche, all these major thinkers, it's as if we don't need them anymore. We, we can sort of build life without God anymore. And look how well that turned out for us. Sir Edward Gray, British politician, 1914, in his memoirs, he wrote the famous lines, the lamps were going out all over Europe. We shall not see them lit again in our lifetime. What he meant was that it's like this, almost like this growing darkness is coming here with the first war, the second war. It's like the light of human decency, ethics, morals, morality. It's like the lamp has been snuffed out and we don't know if we're going to see it again. Think about the despair that these people are writing from. How do you answer them if you don't come at it from the gospel perspective? How do you preach at a funeral of someone when you know the person is not a believer? It's a very painful discussion you have to have. You want to, the, the, the sort of polite thing to do is sort of dress it up. It'll be okay. It'll be all right. Life goes on. But you know the reality is that it doesn't. That life without God has ultimately no purpose, no value, no meaning, and beyond the grave it has no hope. Look at what the scriptures have to say about sin. Isaiah 6, 5, I am a man of unclean lips. And an unclean heart. Jeremiah 17.9 The human heart is desperately wicked. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death. I have a class I teach on the ethics and politics of war. And one of the first questions they have to wrestle with is what is the fundamental nature of humankind? Are people basically kind, decent, that just do wrongdoing, or are people at the core fundamentally evil, sinful, wicked, and so forth? Most Christianites tend to lean the other way, but there's a few that choose option A. I think people are basically kind, decent, helpful, and so forth. 
But that really smacks against reality, doesn't it? And here's the ultimate point of this. Any worldview that does not explain reality is an inadequate worldview. Meaning you come to me with a worldview that teaches me that people, humans, are basically kind, decent, nurturing. That smacks against reality, doesn't it? Because if you look at the present world, if you look at world from day one, whenever day one was, that's not what you see. That doesn't negate the fact that people can be kind, can be decent, can be charitable. After 9-11 in the U.S., you saw this outpouring. Churches were packed. Politicians sort of behaved themselves for a while. The country seemed a little civil. You give it a few weeks, you're right back at each other's throats. There is something fundamentally wrong with the DNA of people. The Bible is the only one that ultimately explains why the human heart, as Jeremiah puts it, is desperately wicked. And if it's wicked, then it has a need for what? It has a need for a savior. It has a need for salvation. No other system ultimately explains adequately what is wrong with us except for the scriptures. They're absolutely relevant to the modern world because scripture and scripture alone can speak to the human condition. Point number two, design in the universe explains origins. This is something I deal with a lot. I had a parent come to me two weeks ago, co-worker. She said, my 13-year-old daughter is checking out of church. I said, why? She said, she's obviously an incredibly brilliant kid. She goes to NASA space camp every summer in the U.S. That's something you usually see high school, college kids. She's 13 and she does it. She says her favorite writer is Stephen Hawking. Now, that's just weird. Number one, you're 13 years old. Your favorite writer is Stephen Hawking. Mine was like Curious George. But her problem is, she says... She is absolutely, totally convinced that God is inadequate to explain creation, design. She's totally bought in Darwin, totally bought in that the idea that science and God are incompatible propositions. He says she won't listen to anyone that's, quote, religious. Well, that's a problem because most of the early scientists in the history of science were Christians. She'd have to throw out hundreds of years of scientific advancement born by Christians. She said, can you help me? I said, sure. I said, what do you need me to do? She said, recommend some books for her to read. She said, but they cannot be written by a pastor. She won't read them. That's easy enough to do. So I gave her a list of about 20 books, 20 leading scientists at leading universities today. They're both scientists, they're both believers, and she went to camp, she's read some of these books, I said, what's going on with your daughter? She said, she's confused. She's confused because she didn't think the gospel had any relevance when it came to science. They would tell her to keep reading, and we're going to be meeting as when I get back at some point to talk about this issue. But the point ultimately is that you cannot explain origins. 
I, and I'm, I'm not trying to get into the finer details of evolution, all that stuff. It's not what I'm trying to get into. But ultimately, you cannot explain the origins of man, the universe, without explaining a creator, a designer. It is simply impossible. You simply can't do it. And let me read the words of A.N. Wilson. A.N. Wilson is a longtime uh, British intellectual, uh, grew up in, in the Anglican faith, very devout in his youth. As he got older, he bought really heavily into Darwin and just drifted the other direction, wrote a very famous book uh, called God's Funeral, which I mentioned, which said intellectually uh, the Bible is outdated, outmoded, I irrelevant, of uh, science is the way into the future, and he walked away from his faith. And his point about the title of God's funeral is that God no more has relevance to the modern world. It can't speak to us anymore. 2009, he wrote an editorial in the New Statesman, and it was titled, Why I Believe Again. Why I Believe Again. It's a very long article, but let me, let me read an excerpt from it. He said, my departure from the faith was like a conversion on the road to Damascus. My return was slow, hesitant, doubting, so it will always be. But I know I shall never make the same mistake again. Gibbert Ryle with Donna's absurdity, called God a category mistake. In other words, we were mistaken when we conceptualized God. He said, but the real category mistake made by atheists is not about God, but about human beings. He said, turn to the table talk, a pamphlet written by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. He says, read the first chapter of Genesis without prejudice, and you will be convinced at once the Lord formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And then Coleridge's adds, and, God, and man became a living soul. And Wilson writes, materialism will never adequately explain these last words. What he means is you can take the physical, tangible materials of a human being life, something externally gives it life. That's what science, or let me just say materialism cannot explain. Remember Genesis, it says Adam was formed, and then it says God breathed life into Adam, became a living being. All the stuff of Adam was there, the blood, the muscles, the tendons, the eyes, the ears, all the stuff that makes a human work, but there was still no life until God, what, breathed it back into him. And Wilson, if you read the whole article, he talks about those words just ultimately haunted him. He says he couldn't get away from it. And ultimately, as he writes, he believes again. He says he'll never make that mistake again. Something I get thrown to me all the time when I teach is biology, physics, all this stuff explains everything here. It's not even close. And the thing is, my response back, I don't have to quote Christians. 
I quote evolutionists in their own words. How they struggle with their own doubt, their own frustrations, their own uh, inadequacies. And it gets them thinking, and that's kind of the point of sort of part two Wednesday night I'm going to discuss is how do we sort of connect these dots with people. But this, this letter here from Wilson, this isn't written by some, someone who's been in the pulpit for 20, 30 years. It's written by someone who walked away from the faith and came back to it. And he's pointing to the book of Genesis. Number three, ethics demands a moral lawgiver. Boy, this is something we struggle with. Rob and I have been talking about this the last couple of days about how Modern people are struggling with ethics, what we often call selective outrage. In the U.S. now, two states recently in the past month, Virginia, which is long a conservative state in New York, not surprising there, passed a law that legalizes post-birth abortion. What that means is that if a child is, if you run tests on a child, and the child is deemed to be autistic, and I have an autistic son, just so you know, or cerebral palsy or whatever, if the parents deem the child is just going to be too much of a burden, there's a, there's a, a window there that they can have that child euthanized. And it's funny, this didn't occur in some far-off village in the boondocks where the people are uncouth, savage, uncivilized, paganized. It's in a modern industrial nation. We like to think we're more moral than our ancestors. My students love to shake their fist at prior generations because they're all hopelessly backward. Because of all the evils in the past and presumably we're more moral than they are. But two states now say it's okay to take the life of a child after the birth of the child, not before. At least we had the decency to do it before they were born before. Now we do it after, after they're born. And they call themselves progressives. Folks, that's not progress. That's regress. It's amazing how much the modern world is very Old Testament-like in its politics sometimes. There was a book that came out just a couple years ago, Sherman Robb, the German, I'm not trying to pick on anyone here, but it's called The German Mind, a study of Germany between 1750 and 1950. And the author really struggled. The author is not a Christian, but he really struggled. He said, if you look at Germany between 1750 and 1950, it led in virtually every single intellectual category you can imagine. Politics, philosophy, theology, art, literature, music. They won more Nobel Peace Prizes than the entire world put together. And yet, the Holocaust happened in that country. It didn't happen in some African village where they're, quote, savages. It didn't happen in the Amazon among a tribe of headhunters. It didn't happen in, in the aborigines of Australia where they're, they're, quote, they're not civilized yet. No, it happened in a modern, most educated country of its day. And something I hear over and over and over in schools is that, well, people do bad because of a lack of what? Education. They're ignorant. But folks, going back to the point one, people don't do bad because they're ignorant. They do bad because they're sinful. 
if you think you can educate someone out of sin, you're wrong. I mean, presumably, if you get a master's, you'll be more moral than someone with a bachelor's. You get a doctorate, you'll be more moral. You get a double doctorate, you'll be even more moral. We know that's nonsense. Education, well, a good thing, often doesn't have a connection at all to morality. One writer I, I liked back in the States, he said, he said, what's the difference between a 16-year-old kid who steals bubble gum from a convenience store and a Wall Street tycoon who, who steals billions in the stock market? He said, nothing, they're both thieves. The 16-year-old kid does it on a smaller scale, but the Wall Street guy can steal the whole company. The point is, is both immoral it's both theft, and both of it ultimately has nothing to do with education. It has to do with the human heart. The human heart, as Jeremiah says, is desperately wicked. God called Isaiah, and Isaiah said, but I am a man of unclean lips. He didn't say, well, I was waiting for you to pick me because I'm the rock star here in the Old Testament. No, he said, I'm inadequate. When God called Moses, he said, I'm not a good speaker. He didn't feel, inade he felt inadequate when God called Saul. Like, you got to be kidding me. I'm a guy who used to persecute you people. But God knew what he was doing. God can work despite ourselves, and that's a good thing. Despite who we are, God can still work with and through us, and that's a good thing because all of us, all of us are inadequate. We are so confused in our morals. Save the immigrant. Take the life of the child. That's confused right there. Take the child. Save the eagle. That's confused ethics right there. Writer I read recently, whom I like, she said it's interesting in the Bible, the Bible really doesn't talk about atheism. It talks about idolatry. And when we think about idolatry, oftentimes... We, we think about a physical, tangible idol we can look at. I've been to India a couple of times, and you see idols everywhere. It feels like you're in the Old Testament. It really does. Everywhere there's an idol, an idol, idol, a statue. It's just really kind of creepy. I love the country, but it's kind of creepy, the idols. And it feels like you're back in the Old Testament. But what the Bible is talking about with idolatry is not so much the physical, tangible idol, but a replacement. An idol is a substitute, isn't it? For something else. When you kick God out. You don't have a void for long. Because you're going to fill it with something else. It may be drugs. It may be alcohol. It may be sex. It may be your job. Your career. It may be money. Power. Wealth. For some it's. Labor movements, which are a good thing in many respects, but sometimes it becomes an idol. The environmental movement. I'm a big outdoors guy. I love the, envir I love the environmental movement in some respects, but sometimes it gets really off-grid. Speciesism, this new concept that there is no distinction at all between man and animals. There's no hierarchy. We're not a, quote, favored race, so to speak. We're not higher than the animals. We have equal value, equal worth, and so forth. Romans 1 tells us what? It tells us that people will invert creation. They will worship the creation instead of the creator. 
When you go that direction, our ethics get very confused, and people are confused all the time about ethics. If you, if you try to construct an ethical framework without God, all you end up with is confusion. We're told all the time by some of my secular colleagues, there's no absolutes, there's no moral norms, everything is relative. So you steal their car, then they're not relative as anymore. See, you don't pay them on time, but they're not relative anymore. See, you insult your wife, then they're not relative anymore. You can't do that. Says who? It's like a pretty childish response, but it's a valid question. Based upon your own morals, I can do whatever I want. What people mean, and what the way one writer puts it, I love the way he puts it. He said, you want to know what someone really, really believes about ethics? Judge them not by their actions, but by their reaction. Judge them not by their actions, but not by their actions. What he means is don't judge people by the way they treat people because they're probably going to treat them poorly. Judge them by their response to how you treat them when you treat them. They're very quick to go to that's not fair. People are very selective in our ethics. Because we're confused. We don't believe there's a fundamental foundation for right, for wrong. If we don't believe there's a lawgiver, then as Dostoevsky says, there is no God. Anything is permissible. You think the 20th century was so bloody. It's not that the 19th century wasn't. So many nations threw God. I tell people all the time that people behave the way they do, even, even Christians sometimes, not because they're close to God, but because of this. Why are our marriages so messed up? Because God is not the center of it. Why are our, why is the, in, in the U.S., the, just the rate of depression is just skyrocketing through the roof. Why are people so upset about it? Partly they're trying to live a life without God, without Christ as the center. There's a hole there. They're trying to fill with a void. They may fill it with drugs, but drugs is not the fundamental problem. It's they have pushed God out and are trying to substitute an idol in place of God. Ethics simply doesn't work without a lawgiver. The gospel speaks to this. It speaks directly to this right here. Number four, I'll wrap up with this. The cross offers redemption and hope, and the only one. The only one. The only hope the cross gives, the, the only hope we have, if, if I've just sort of painted the picture of a problem, how do we then solve the problem? How do we get redemption? If we have sin then we need to be redeemed. Who can, who can provide that, that, that redemption? Christ can at the cross. Or let me add another layer, the resurrection. The cross is essential, but without the resurrection, things would have been over. Let me give a, a quick illustration. There's a story I like based on a research project in the 1950s. They did this experiment with, with rats. They put rats, it was a experiment on hope. They put rats in a big bucket of water. 
and their little feet just went turning, 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 trying to stay above the water. They waited about five minutes, and they took them out. And they, they gave them a rest. They put them back in the water, kept them there 15 minutes. They took them out, put them back in, kept them 30 minutes, took them out. They kept doing this. The rats could swim for several hours because they kept taking them out, giving them a rest, taking them out, getting a rest back and forth. Then they took another group of rats, put them in the same water. They were not going to rescue these rats. Ten minutes, they all drowned. The lake, what does this teach us about hope? The first rats clearly got used to the idea of expecting someone to save them, someone to bail them out. They kept swimming, 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 swimming because it was the expectation, I'm going to be rescued a second time, a third time, a fourth time, a fifth time. The first one's no hope, no one's coming, I can't do it anymore. Drowned. This is very important here. In the Christian faith, we do not have hope in a concept. Sometimes we say have faith, have hope, but have faith in what? Have hope in what? In the Christian faith, our faith, our hope is grounded in the person and the work of Christ. Faith in faith doesn't work. Faith Hope and hope doesn't work. We hope in the person and the work of Christ who has come through over and over and over and over and over and promises in the future, in the end, he's going to win all the battles. For the Christian, our hope it rests not in a concept of hope or faith, but in the person and the redemptive work of Christ. Jeremiah 32, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible you know Jeremiah, he's one of the last prophets to prophesy when Israel's about to be swept away by the Babylonians. And God says to him, I want you to purchase some land, redeem it from your relative. Jeremiah, like, you got to be kidding me. I'm about to lose my homeland, and he want me to purchase some property. It's like if you know there's an invasion coming into your homeland, you're not going to invest in an apartment. You're going to pack up and get out of there. But God says, buy the land. He explains why. Because I'm going to redeem the land. You're going to be in exile for 70 years, but I will return my people to this land. I will redeem the land. The purchase of the land is a basically a banking note on the return of his people. God isn't rejecting his people. He's not going to forget his people. It's a promise. Buy it. Trust me. Your people will come back to this land. That's hope. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-14 says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. So we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep with him. He says, we do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. We have hope. We have hope in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Let me kind of wrap up with another uh, quick story. And I'll wrap up here in a couple of minutes. Matthew Paris. I don't know how many know their name. 
Matthew Paris is an atheist. It's a bunch of them in this lecture, isn't it? <laughs> Matthew Paris, though, grew up in Africa, 45 years. Uh, not a Christian. His parents were sort of uh, aid workers in Africa. Matthew Paris wrote an article in the New York Times, 2009, titled, As an Atheist, I Believe Africa Needs God. Listen to those words. As an atheist, I believe Africa needs God. Kind of a weird statement, isn't it? Why does he say that for? Let me read an excerpt from his letter. Very powerful. And given your church's connection to Lesotho, I thought this illustration would be particularly relevant to you. It says, Before Christmas, I returned after 45 years to the country that as a boy I knew as Naziland. Today it's Malawi. And the Times Christmas Appeal, a little journal there, includes a small British charity working there. Pump Aid helps rural communities to install a single pump, letting people keep their village wells sealed and clean. I went to see this work, so let me provide the context. Paris grew up in Africa, in what is now Malawi. And after years of living back in, back in the West, he went back. He heard about some Christian programs, some charity programs working there. He said, I want to go see these for myself. This is what he writes. It inspired me, renewing my flagging faith in development charities. But traveling to Malawi refreshed another belief, too, one that I've been trying to banish all my life. But as an observation, I've been unable to avoid since my African childhood. It confounds my ideological beliefs, stubbornly refuses to fit my worldview, and has embarrassed my growing belief that there is no God. What is that? He says, now a confirmed atheist. I become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa, sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects, and international aid efforts. These alone will not do. Education and training will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. I, try, I used to avoid this truth by plotting, as you can, <clears throat> the practical work of mission churches in Africa. It's a pity, I would say. That salvation is part of the package. But Christians, black and white, working in Africa do heal the sick, do teach people to read and write, and only the severest kind of secularist could see a mission, hospital, or a school and say the world would, would do better without it. I would allow that if faith was needed to motivate missionaries to help them, fine. But what counted was the help, not the faith. I disagree. But he writes, but this doesn't fit the facts. Faith does more that support the missionary, it also is transferred to his flock. This is the effect that matters so immensely and which I cannot help observing. Pretty powerful words. An atheist grown up in Africa, he says, I met Africanese God. book written just a couple years ago called Dead Aid. Dead Aid, written by a U.N. worker who worked in 
um, on food relief, poverty relief projects for well over 20 years for the United Nations. The book's called Dead Aid. He said, despite all the money, all the fundraising, all the con benefit concerts would do, he said it hadn't put a dent in world poverty. But what has is the gospel. Because the gospel ultimately addresses the fundamental problem of food is a real problem. Don't get me wrong. That's what I'm saying. But oftentimes there are other underlying causes to people's miseries. Food, alcohol, drugs, and so forth, offered, they're a symptom of something greater. There's a hole in the human heart that Pascal talked about that only God can fill. He said we, we, we wander aimlessly in search of what can fill this void. He said if we don't turn to Christ, we're always going to be lost because we're never going to quite get it. It's like the one solution you need to cure your illness is the one solution you refuse to take. And so you're always going to be sick. Folks, the gospel is not outdated. In fact, the gospel is the only, only gospel that can explain the modern world. It's not in polar opposition. It very much explains where we are. It doesn't matter that Abraham didn't have Twitter. That's probably why he got more done than we do. Sin explains the reality of evil and pain and suffering in this world. Nothing else does. Number two, you absolutely cannot explain the origins of man, the universe, without referring to a designer. There ultimately has to be a creator. Number three, ethics. Work always going to be confused in our ethics. We're always going to be have sort of what we call selective outrage. Why does this aggravate you but not this? Say this, take this life. Say this, kill this. It's, it doesn't make any sense. And it never will. Apart from looking at ethics as something that we get from the character of God. Number four, we have a problem, we need a cure. That's where redemption comes in. The gospel is the only one that offers ultimate redemption from our pain. It's not money, charity. It's not even humanitarian work. You can take anything, anything in isolation. It could be good. But ultimately, it doesn't bring salvation. It doesn't bring redemption. It's a temporary fulfillment, but it doesn't bring long-term substance. The gospel, the cross, and particularly the empty tomb, which represents victory over Death, that is the only thing ultimately that will bring mankind any hope at all.